Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Scotland has had an enormous victory in fighting cervical cancer, and it's due to an HPV vaccination program. Cervical cancer is caused almost universally by the human papillomavirus, or HPV. And now, a new study shows how effective vaccination can be. No Scot who received the vaccine around age 12 has developed cervical cancer since the program began in 2008. Dr. Tim Palmer is an author of this study, clinical consultant with Public Health Scotland, and he joins us from Inverness. Dr. Palmer, hello. Hello. Good afternoon. I want to get to the results of this, which, as I say, seem really, really impressive in in just a moment. But first, for people who aren't, and I gave the kind of very simple sketch there, but for people who aren't familiar with this, just walk us through what HPV is. HPV is a very old virus. It's everywhere. It's not just confined to humans. You find it in rabbits, tortoises, cows, monkeys, porpoises. It's ubiquitous. And it's been around for a long time. It's very stable. It causes infections mostly commonly of the skin, but also of the cervix, of the mouth, the throat, and Although in the skin, the infections are mostly benign, almost exclusively benign, in the cervix and the back of the mouth, the tonsil and the tongue, it may indeed cause cancer. But only a small minority of the over 100 HPV types are capable of doing that. How common were those HPV-related cancers in Scotland prior to the vaccine program taking hold there? Vaccine program started in 2008, at which point the incidence was around 11 to 12 per 100,000 women, giving us about 300 to 350 cases a year. Uh, it had been a lot higher than that back in the 90s before when we started organized screening, but that's the sort of baseline we were at 300 to 350 cases a year in Scotland, most commonly at age 30 to 35 years back in 1988. Tell me about the vaccine program and, and how the rollout worked, because I think people here in this country, and we'll talk more about this, will be familiar with how this has happened here in Canada. But in Scotland, what were you doing? It was delivered almost exclusively through schools. So teams of nurses went into the schools, they uh, talked to the to the children, they children talked to their parents, the parents gave permission, and so between 12 and ages of 12 and 13, they all got three doses over the coming six months or so. Uh, between 14 and 18, if they were still in school, they also got three doses. If they had just left school in the previous academic year, that is in July 2008, when we started the vaccination program, they were also eligible. Uh, so you've got some 18-year-olds and 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds who had just left school getting the vaccine. But the vast majority of vaccines were administered in school with 
a very good coverage. What was the belief behind going through schools? I mean, again, this conversation happened here in Canada, but from, from Scotland's perspective, why was that the right venue? Because of the, there's an already an organized school uh, health program and nurses went into school on a regular basis to check for other inoculations like rubella and um, uh, TB. So they, they, were, they were already going into schools and it seemed logical to graft this immunization program onto an existing structure rather than try and organize something. And it was also known that it was really important to get this vaccine into people's arms before they became sexually active. So schools, well, as far as we were concerned in Scotland, it was a no-brainer. Mm. I want to come back to the no-brainer part in this um, in just a moment, because across, I mean, whenever you're talking about vaccines, there is pushback from some constituencies, but this one in particular had some. But let's talk further about the vaccine itself. In Canada, the vaccine that is used, um, people will be familiar, is Gardasil. Is that what you were using in Scotland? In Scotland, for the rollout in 2008, we used the so-called bivalent vaccine, Cervarix. Uh, we changed to Gardasil after three or four years because uh, cost-benefit, basically, and the fact that Gardasil offers coverage against benign vaccine types that cause genital warts. But having said that, it transpires that it offers less effective coverage in the Gardasil 4 form than Cervarix because Cervarix gives good cross-protection against three other types, making it in essence a pentavalent vaccine. Mm. However, I think most places now are moving towards the nine-valent vaccine, which includes seven of the types that cause cancer. And so the headline coming out of this report says that no new cases of cervical cancer have been detected in those women who were vaccinated between the ages of 12 and 13 since this program began. That seems like really big news. It is. We had published in 2019 a paper showing that pre-invasive disease had dropped by 90% in women who had been vaccinated at age 12, 13. Can you just explain what that is, the pre-invasive disease? Because that's important here as well. Yeah, I mean, the cancer develops over time. And the whole rationale for cervical cancer screening is to pick up the developmental stages before they become invasive cancer and treat them. So that's what we were doing. We were picking up the developmental stages, treating them, and we found that in girls who had been vaccinated at age 12, 13, there was only 10% of the pre-invasive disease that we had seen previously. Mm. So we expected good substantial reduction in invasive disease, invasive cancer, when we followed these people up, but have to say to find none in the completely vaccinated girls, and that is those who had had three doses of the Cervix or two doses uh, six months apart, then that was a surprise, but a very welcome one. What was your reaction when you, when you learned that surprise? Went back and checked the data <laughs> because it was, it was unexpected. But we looked at the cancer registry, we looked at our screening system, brought the two together, correlated everything, and it's robust. It's holding up. What does that mean? I mean, when there are, it sounds obvious, but when there are no cancer cases that have developed and the pre-cancerous uh, incidents are, are down dramatically, what does that mean for this disease, but also for what we know about the vaccine? 
What it means for the disease is that we ha- that it's going to behave quite differently in terms of the developmental stages. So we've got to monitor these women, continue to monitor them and monitor the people coming into the screening program to find out exactly what sort of disease cervical cancer is going to be. You have to remember that the vaccines at best cover seven of the cancer-causing viruses, HPV types, and that covers probably, certainly in Scotland, it covers 90, 92% of all cervical cancers. But there's still that sort of 10, 8% of cancers that we'll, we're not covering for, and so therefore we continue, must continue to screen for them, but we may have to change how we screen and how often we screen. So, it, yes, it's really good news, but it's, there's no room for complacency. We do have to be vigilant still. Uh, with women that we're following, mm. uh, it's early days yet. The peak of incidence of cancer is 30 to 35. These women are aged 24 to 28 that we're following at the moment. So there may still be some cancers to develop in the cohort that we followed, but they will be caused by HPV types that we know are less virulent. They take longer to develop cancers than the 16 HPV 16, HPV 18 type that is so common in the young women. The temptation from data like this for some people is to say that this is not just proof of concept when it comes to the vaccine, but also could lead people to the belief that th- these forms of cancer, if not eliminated, can certainly become extremely rare. Is that, is that fair to say that? It is fair to say that screening for these cancers is going to become more difficult and we're going to be increasingly looking for fewer and fewer cases. That's not to say that screening will be irrelevant or we should stop it now. That's your point about not taking your foot off the accelerator, that you can't be complacent. Absolutely. 40 years' time, for example, when in Scotland, when everybody in the screening program, if we continue with our uptake, has had a full course and is showing this sort of level of protection, then we'll have to think again. But I think it will be a while yet before we can dismantle screening programs. How much of the Scottish population is vaccinated right now? I mean, again, it's not just girls. Boys are um, increasingly getting uh, the HPV vaccine as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've done a rough cut. I mean, you have to aggregate several data sources in order to get this. But just looking at girls, we've probably got nearly 400,000 women now vaccinated, adolescent girls and women vaccinated. And of that 400,000 or so, around 250,000 will have been vaccinated at between the ages of 11 and 13. Mm. And that is, that's the really important age to get it. Because if you vaccinate over the age of 14, the value goes down. So if you get vaccinated at the age of 14 to 16, then you prevent about 75% of the cancers if you're vaccinated between 17 and 18, about 40% of the cancers. And if you're vaccinated over the age of 18, we would say there's no benefit at all. And the other thing is you need to have a full course of vaccine. It's quite difficult to f- decide how many people we've vaccinated. And I haven't taken into account boys or the MSM population who've been 
offered the vaccine for some time now. How do you go about ensuring, just finally, and this goes back to um, public attitudes on this vaccine, how do you go about ensuring that a, 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 as wide of a swath as possible is on board with something like the HPV vaccine? We saw it during COVID um, hesitancy that some people might have had with vaccination programs, but this also appeared when this vaccine first was on the the, the landscape, that there are some communities yeah. who were not comfortable with it, some communities who were not comfortable with the timing of it, some communities who speculated that this would lead children to become more sexually active, for example. How do you go about countering that? Um, there are two ways. One is with hard facts, and these are very hard facts, and they are it's incontrovertible that it works and is of inestimable benefit to those that receive it. And the other is to do what the anti-vaccine lobby do, which is actually pull at the heartstrings. And you actually have to do both. And what you have to emphasize is that not being vaccinated is actually quite a bad thing because you know less about yourself. You're less likely to engage with health interventions. We, we showed that in Scotland, that unvaccinated people just don't turn up for screening. And if you don't turn up for screening, there's nothing protecting you from cervical cancer. So if, as a mother or parent, you say to your child, you're not going to get vaccinated, just think about the damage you're doing them or could do them in years to come. And that the bottom line, from your perspective, is that based on the evidence that, that you have thus far, this vaccine is saving lives. Oh, yes, very much so. Tim Palmer, we'll leave it there. Really glad to talk to you. Thank you very much. Okay. Dr. Tim Palmer is a clinical consultant with Public Health Scotland and an author of this study looking at the efficacy of the HPV vaccine in that nation. He's also Scotland's first former clinical lead on cervical screening. Canada isn't that far behind Scotland when it comes to HPV vaccinations, and BC is making strides in testing for the virus. People can now screen for cervical cancer with take-home HPV test kits, first of its kind in Canada. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Gina Ogilvie is the Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Global Control on HPV-Related Diseases and Prevention. She's in Vancouver. Dr. Ogilvie, good morning to you. Good morning. What do you make of what's happening in Scotland and this data that has come out? It seems groundbreaking. It seems, as I said, like big news. Yeah, it's tremendous news and just lovely to hear Tim talk about their work. You know, uh, I think as, as Dr. Palmer described, you know, we've known for some time that these uh, HPV vaccines are tremendously effective. They, we've had great data showing that they prevent those precancerous lesions that we know precede the development of cervical cancer. And what his team has done is shown us that that, you know, what we hoped, what we anticipated, what we expected is coming to fruition, which is that we've seen a dramatic reduction in cervical cancer and, uh, how exciting to have a cancer that's prevented by a vaccine. Where's Canada at when it comes to its HPV vaccine program? Well, we've got publicly funded programs across every province and territory, so that's tremendous, very much aligned with the structure that uh, 
Dr. Palmer talked about. So giving it in schools uh, prior to the to children and all of our programs are gender neutral across Canada. So giving it to children in grade grades sort of five, six, seven. So well before the vast majority of young people are sexually active. Uh, we struggle, like uh, everyone does, with getting our coverage to the rates we want. We're sort of heading up to, by the end of high school, folks being at around 80% being vaccinated. But as, as Dr. Palmer said, we want to get folks vaccinated earlier because that's when it's most effective. So that's what we really want. And we're still at about sort of 65, 70, depending on the province. Some of our provinces have are doing it much better. But, you know, we're still sort of languishing well below where we'd like to see everyone, uh, those rates. What are, what are the obstacles to get to getting to that place? Yeah, I think we, you know, I think COVID showed that there is a, a small group of very vocal folks who express concerns. And I think in Canada, we did struggle with some significant misinformation at the start of the HPV vaccine program. And it's still, parents still have some of those concerns. Has, has that been addressed? So, because that's, I, re- I mean, as a parent, remember those conversations um, yeah, many years ago. Yeah. And I just, that yeah. seems like a long time ago in some ways. I just wonder whether in this country that's been, that's been addressed. Uh, forcefully, yeah, I think we, I think we have. I think we've been working at the showing the safety. Uh, so when you talk to parents, what worries them? It's uh, safety, effectiveness, and whether it in, impacts on their children's sexual uh, health decision making. And so we've been working to gather the evidence, and <clears throat> the data that we've just seen talked about today will be yet another tool that we can use to show this is a vaccine actually to prevent cancer. And don't you want to make sure your child has that opportunity? So uh, we've also shown some very nice data from Ontario and from BC showing that the vaccine has no impact on children's uh, sexual health choices and of course millions and millions of doses given knowing it's very very safe we've also seen i mean just in the wake of the heart of the pandemic um an impact on childhood vaccinations more broadly um has that has that followed through with the hpv vaccine have you seen an impact uh in hesitancy if i can put it that way um, I think what we saw was because schools were closed, we had some consequences. Mm. But overall, I think we're we haven't seen the same sort of impact in term like, like we did with childhood vaccinations. But we still have a long way to go with HPV vaccine. What about when it comes to equity? I mean, one of the things is that outside of those two concerns that you've raised, uh, just ensuring and we see this across the healthcare spectrum, just ensuring that everybody has the same access to care and interventions in care um, can be difficult in this country. How accessible are those programs? I think one of the best things we can do for equity, and I, this is why I think many of us are really pleased that the, the programs are anchored in schools at an early age. And when you look at school attendance across different profiles of equity-seeking communities, at grade five, grade six, grade seven, there's actually very good school attendance across the board. So really focusing on getting the vaccine in at that age is one of our key solutions to, to, to sort of inequities in terms of vaccine access. You start to see that school, that differential in school attendance, and you start to get into to mid to later high school years. So, you know, the more we can get kids vaccinated early on, the better. There are different kinds of interventions, vaccines are one of them. The other is screening, as we've heard. And British Columbia is now the first province in this country to offer an HPV at-home test kit. Tell me about that decision and why that decision is so important. 
Yeah, exactly. As you said, so there's primary prevention, sort of a vaccine, and then secondary prevention, which is detecting those precancerous lesions to, to then treat them to prevent any progression to cancer. And so for years, we've relied on a pap smear. And the pap smear, what, what that did was it required a practitioner to get a sample from the cervix. So women had to undergo a pelvic examination, speculum examination, which for lots of folks, for lots of reasons, was not something that was possible. I mean, it, was, it could be, be traumatic, it could be invasive, it could be all of those things and more. Absolutely. They had to book off of, of work. It was, you know, very difficult for lots of folks to attend. So we've done, there's research both led in Canada, but also globally that shows that HPV, the test for the infection is actually actually better at detecting those precancerous lesions. And very importantly, also, when you have an HPV test and it's negative, we also know you're very unlikely to develop precancerous lesions in four, five, six years, seven years after. So we have a test that detects those precancerous lesions better. We have a test that says if, that when it's negative, we have greater confidence for a longer period of time with that negative result. And then the third benefit is that because you don't actually have to see the cervix, you just need to get a sample from the vagina, our clinician can still collect it, but a woman can collect it herself. And, and it can be done, doesn't have to be done in a clinic. It can be done in the privacy of our own home. If you choose to have a, a community gathering, people can, ha can, can get screened in a private space, those kinds of things. So lots of, so really putting that screening back in the hands of the individual. How accurate is the kit, the, the at-home test kit? Very accurate. So there's been lots of systematic reviews that show it is as accurate. So if you get an HPV test that a clinician takes and an HPV test that an individual takes, they're very accurate. And I think let's also remember this is also compared to pap screening, which is what's going on across the country. And it's vastly superior. If you go back to that issue of accessibility again, in part, we are talking about making sure that, that as many communities, if not all communities in this country have access to the vaccines. Um, what does having an at-home test kit do in terms of broadening accessibility broadly um, for, for a range of different communities that might already face stigma and barriers and accessibility concerns when it comes to their broader health care? Yeah, there's tremendous opportunity to address those equity gaps. So our team in British Columbia, but teams across the country have been working on how do we engage different communities in screening. And uh, so we've worked with the, the South Asian community in Surrey through their, their family physician. We've worked with uh, Indigenous-led uh, programs throughout British Columbia. We've worked in the downtown east side. I've got colleagues in Toronto who've worked with immigrant women, with Black women, all different groups that we know have lower screening rates. And what we find is self-collection is very acceptable to these communities. They really like the fact that they can take it home, do it in the privacy of their own home. And also we've got models where, for instance, a community gets a, a community health day together. Mm. So people gather and then they can go into the bathroom and, and provide a self-collection kit. So they're in a much more sort of safe, welcoming uh, environment, particularly for communities like the Indigenous communities where a history of, uh, of institutional racism has made it very hard to engage with the healthcare system. So yeah, it, it opens up a whole bunch of creative ways to improve screening across the country. What's the promise here, do you think, just finally? I mean, again, I asked Tim Palmer this. The headline coming out of Scotland 
is so dramatic, no cases detected uh, amongst that cohort that was vaccinated, that people start to speculate that this could be on the verge of not eliminating this disease, but as I say, making it a very rare occurrence, or at the very least a rare occurrence. How close are we to that, do you think? Well, both the WHO and the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer, who's been really, you know, leading this cause and championing this for many years now, we have named elimination of cervical cancer as one of our goals. So that that is what we're aiming for. I think the cautionary note that Dr. Palmer flagged for us is that, remember, you know, right now in Canada, the vast majority of folks who were vaccinated in the school-based programs are sort of 29, 30, that sort of age. So we need to keep screening because there's a whole bunch of uh, women who are not, not have not received the vaccine and need screening. And also don't forget, uh, Canada is a country of immigrants and many uh, women will come here and were not vaccinated in their own home countries. So we have to keep in mind that screening is going to still need to be around for some time. But with the improved accuracy of, of HPV, the improved access through self-collection, as well as, you know, on the foundation, hopefully, of the vaccine for, for most folks, you know, eliminating cervical cancer is well within our sights. This is really good news. Yeah, it's exciting news. Very exciting. Really glad to talk to you about it, uh, Dr. Ogilvie. Thank you very much. Thanks for chatting with me. Dr. Gina Ogilvie is a Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Global Control of HPV-Related Diseases and Prevention at the University of British Columbia. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.